0: Section 15 of The Life of Viscount Palmerston by Lloyd Charles Sanders. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8. Palmerston and the Court. 1849-1852. to Part 1. Though Lord Palmerston's policy since the return of the Whigs to power had been on the whole remarkably sober and sagacious the bulwer fiasco at madrid and the sicilian incident proved that the old atom of insubordination was not wholly dead within him nor were these the only occasions on which forgetful of the flight of time he attempted a repetition of the tactics which had been so successful in the good old days of lord melbourne and sent off important despatches without submitting them to lord john russell and the sovereign or without inserting the alterations which he had been directed to make and the necessity of coming to a previous understanding upon important steps was all the greater because the opinions of the court and the foreign secretary were distinctly at issue on many questions of european importance the sympathies of the court were with austria those of palmerston with italy and hungary and his views were the wiser of the two but about north german politics he was rather prejudiced and rather ignorant yet he paid small attention to the opinions of prince albert who was unquestionably better informed among the many wise memoranda which are to be found in sir theodore martin's life of prince consort perhaps the most remarkable are those in which he urged the necessity of German unity under Prussian leadership. Palmerston, though, as can be seen in an interesting letter written by him during a visit to Berlin in 1844, he was not without some insight into the great part that Prussia would some day be called upon to play, cared little for German unity. And while Prince Albert saw in the Zollverein, or Customs Union, a feeble beginning of a one and undivided fatherland, Palmerston resented its existence as an arrangement for placing prohibitive duties on British exports. Indeed, if the Danish succession question may be taken as a test, Palmerston's want of information on the inner workings of Teutonic politics was very considerable. Count Wittstum in his memoirs goes so far as to state that the foreign secretary was actuated by personal motives in the matter, his aim being to purchase the non-interference of Baron Brunov in the Don Pacifico affair by giving Russia a free hand at Copenhagen and supporting, or at all events acquiescing, in the claims put forward by the Russian dynasty to a portion of the Danish territory which included the important harbour of Kiel. Even if this account of the history of the Protocol of July 4, 1850, upon which was based the Treaty of 1852, guaranteeing the crown of Denmark to Prince Christian of Glücksburg be not accepted as gospel, there can be no doubt that the continued exclusion of germany from the baltic by the maintenance of the connection between denmark and schleswig holstein was far more a matter of interest to russia than to england and though there may be some question as to the motives which dictated the arrangement there can be none as to the carelessness with which it was executed the choice of the negotiators fell upon a prince who whatever claims he might have to the throne of denmark was regarded by german jurists to have a right to the duchies inferior to no less than nineteen other members of the house of schleswig-holstein the renunciations of these agnates were never obtained nor was the consent of the estates of the duchies lastly though the duchies were indisputably members of the german federation no attempt was made to obtain for the arrangement the sanction of the federation in its collective form for austria and prussia signed the protocol not as mandatories of the german diet but individually as great powers it seemed quite on the cards that a trial of strength between the court and the foreign secretary might be averted by the retirement of lord palmerston from office in consequence of a hostile opinion in the house of commons as to the merits of his treatment of what is generally known as the don pacifico affair lord palmerston's defence of the port against the menaces of russia and austria had been generally approved but there was naturally some revulsion of public feeling when it was discovered that the fleet which had been so honorably employed at the Dardanelles, was immediately afterwards dispatched to coerce the weak little kingdom of Greece for the non-compliance with the demands of the British government for compensation for various acts of violence committed toward British subjects. There was even a feeling of dismay when the intelligence leaked out, that the french government had actually recalled its minister drouan de louis from london because it believed that his attempts to patch up the dispute between england and greece had been treated with scanty respect and that the russian government had demanded an explanation of palmerston's proceedings in rather a serious tone perhaps the point at issue were hardly understood the seizure of the greek gunboats and greek merchantmen by admiral parker was regarded as a piece of bullying by people who argued as if the feebleness of a state was a reason for allowing it to commit crimes with impunity there was also a disposition to minimize the amount and duration of the wrongs committed and to overlook the utter impossibility of obtaining redress through the greek courts of law or by any means short of the employment of force because one of the complainants don pacifico was a jew adventurer who seized the opportunity to put forward some utterly extortionate claims for compensation there was no reason why satisfaction should not be exacted for the destruction of his house by an athenian mob in any rate mr finley the historian whose land had been seized by king Otto without a drachma in return was a perfectly reputable person and of the other offences of the hellenic authorities the torture of an ionian who was a british subject and the arrest of the coxswain and boat's crew of h m s fantome were unquestionably outrages of a very serious nature the British case against the disreputable little Greek government was really perfectly clear, but to apportion the blame for the breakdown of the negotiations was a nicer question. The offer of French mediation was certainly made in good faith, though Palmerston strongly suspected that the intrigues of the French minister at the Greek court were at the bottom of King Otto's obstinacy but when baron gros the french commissioner arrived at athens his proceedings resembled those of an advocate rather than those of an arbitrator the terms of his settlement were rejected by our ambassador mr wise as inadequate and he thereupon gave notice that his mission was at an end meanwhile a parallel series of negotiations had been going on in london between Drouin de Louis and Palmerston, which had issue in a convention signed on the 18th, which disposed of the whole question under dispute. Intimation of the terms of the proposed arrangement, of which the essential was that if the negotiators at Athens could not agree, they should refer their differences to London, reached Baron Gros on the 24th and was communicated to him by Mr. Wise but the latter, who had received no fresh instructions from London corresponding to those that his French colleague had received from Paris, did not venture to depart from his previous instructions and postpone the employment of force. The embargo was renewed on the 25th, and on the following day the Greek government submitted unconditionally it was but natural that the french government should feel that they had been treated with disrespect and resent that treatment accordingly Drouin de louis was recalled from london and general laheite the french foreign minister openly charged the british government with duplicity a dispassionate examination of the whole affair would probably have acquitted palmerston of a more serious offence than neglect to keep mr wise constantly and accurately informed on the progress of negotiations in london but he did not improve matters by trying in answer to mr milner gibson to explain away the recall of Drouant de louis who said he had gone to paris in order personally to be a medium of communication between the two governments the excitement was great, though the danger of war was in reality quite remote. Many of Palmerston's colleagues were anxious to be rid of him, and the opposition in the House of Lords seized the opportunity to win a bloodless victory by carrying a hostile resolution on the motion of Lord Stanley by a majority of twenty-seven. The Cabinet, after deliberation, decided to stand or fall together and resolved to cancel the bad effects of the vote in the upper house by availing themselves of a resolution of which mr roebuck had given notice that the principles on which the foreign policy of her majesty's government had been regulated had been such as were calculated to maintain the honour and dignity of this country and in times of unexampled difficulty to preserve peace between england and the various nations of the world the debate of four nights which followed was made memorable by the last speech that Sir Robert Peel ever made, by Mr. Cockburn's brilliant crown and anchor harangue, as Mr. Disraeli termed it, by one of the greatest of Mr. Gladstone's oratorical displays, and by Palmerston's magnificent defense of his policy in a speech lasting from the dusk of one day till the dawn of another. Of that magnificent specimen of sustained and elaborate argument, it is impossible here to give more than a very meagre account. Part of it was a well considered Apologia Pro Vita sua, in which he passed the whole of recent European history before him in skilful review by a series of graceful transitions from the sunny plains of Castile and gay vineyards of France to the rugged Alps and smiling plains of Lombardy. Incidentally, he managed to make a remarkably neat cut at his enemies in Paris, and to those who listened to them in England, by laughing to scorn the idea that the French had driven out M. Guizot at the instigation of a knot of foreign conspirators who were caballing against him, for no other reason than that he upheld, as he conceived, the dignity and interests of his country on the greek question his argument was temperate and lucid except when it concerned the breakdown of the mission of beron and there leakages are to be discovered in abundance but little exception can be taken to his contention that if british subjects could get no redress from foreign courts of law they were not to be confined to that remedy only but were entitled to receive the protection of their own government or to his arguments that mr finley had no redress because the greek revolution of eighteen forty three had thrown a veil over the unconstitutional acts of the monarchy and that with respect to don pacifico it was impossible to take proceedings against a mob of five hundred persons the orator brushed aside the flimsy objection that because monsieur Pacifico was a person of doubtful antecedents, he could be maltreated with impunity. The rights of a man depend on the merits of the particular case, and it is an abuse of argument to say that you are not to give redress to a man because in some former transactions he may have done something which is questionable. Punish him if you will, punish him if he is guilty, but don't pursue him as a pariah through life. Oh, but, it is said, what an ungenerous proceeding to employ so large a force against so small a power! Does the smallness of a country justify the magnitude of its evil acts? Is it to be held that if your subjects suffer violence, outrage, and plunder in a country which is small and weak, you are to tell them, when they apply for compensation, that the country is so weak and so small that we cannot ask it for compensation? Their answer would be that the weakness and smallness of the country makes it the more easy to obtain redress. At the close of the speech came the well-known peroration, in which the foreign secretary extolled the dignity of English citizenship. He did not, he said, blame the opposition for attacking ministers, for the government of England was an object of fair and legitimate ambition for men of all shades of opinion. For while we have seen the political earthquake rocking Europe from side to side, while we have seen thrones shaken, shattered, levelled, institutions overthrown and destroyed, while in almost every country of Europe the conflict of civil war has deluged the land with blood from the Atlantic to the Black Sea, from the baltic to the mediterranean this country has presented a spectacle honourable to the people of england and worthy of the admiration of mankind we have shown that liberty is compatible with order that individual freedom is not irreconcilable with obedience to the law we have shown the example of a nation in which every class of society accepts with cheerfulness the lot which providence has assigned to it while at the same time every individual of each class is constantly striving to raise himself in the social scale not by injustice and wrong not by violence and illegality but by persevering good conduct and by the steady and energetic exertion of the moral and intellectual faculties with which his creator has endowed him to govern such a people as this is indeed an object worthy of the ambition of the noblest man who lives in the land and therefore i find no fault with those who may think any opportunity a fair one for endeavouring to place themselves in so distinguished and honourable a position but making allowances for these differences of opinion which may fairly and honourably arise among those who concur in general views, I maintain that the principles which can be traced through all our foreign transactions as the guiding rule and directing spirit of our proceedings are such as deserve approbation. I therefore fearlessly challenge the verdict which this House, as representing a political, a commercial, a constitutional country is to give on the question before it whether the principles on which the foreign policy of this country has been conducted and the sense of duty which has led us to think ourselves bound to afford protection to our fellow-subjects abroad are proper and fitting guides for those who are charged with the government in england and whether as the roman in the days of old held himself free from indignity when he could say Kiwis Romanus sum, so also a British subject in whatever land he be shall feel confident that the watchful eye and the strong arm of England shall protect him against injustice and wrong. End of section 15